so good. Um, okay, I, I honestly, I think we're off. Uh, Olivia, welcome, welcome Fabulous. on board. Hi. The podcast boat, boat of love and conversation. God, that was a terrible <laughs> way to start this. Um, I apologize <laughs> right off the bat. No, don't, don't worry. That, right. that, that's good. We haven't talked much at all, uh, but you strike me as a just sort of magus of the internet. You're like a polymath. You've got a lot of stuff going on. That's right? that's insanely flattering coming from you because I read your tweets and they're so effortlessly funny. It's like, how can one person be smart in math and know a lot of math and also be effortlessly funny? I have like... I have the most flattering envy towards you, really, because, you know, when I'm really overwhelmed with work, I do not have the capacity to, like, be funny at all. Um, right. Well, that's very like, nice for you to say. Thank you. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's insanely flattering. Because, um, like, I feel like my capacity and how I interact on the internet has evolved a lot over the years. Um and I've, I've sort of detached a lot of myself from the internet, but, um, yeah, I, I'm finishing my PhD in, it's, it's labeled in applied physics, but what I do actually is I do photonics, which is basically working with light, some forms of optics on like a nanoscale and then quantum optics. So interacting light with atoms, um, and, you know, sort of creating, and measuring different quantum optical processes. I know that sounds like very um, nebulous. I can go into a lot more detail <laughs> as I'd, we go I'd on. I'd love you to. Maybe we'll do that at the end so that the, uh, yeah, the stragglers, sure. str we'll keep it for the stragglers on who are interested in that stuff. The um, stragglers, yeah. Yeah, there's a few things I'm interested in. I'm interested in uh, what, I, I don't know how, how, if you even, how, like the extent to which you think about these things, but maybe like, what you personally find so um what you personally find fulfilling in physics and what itch that scratches for you and maybe like also i'm interested in the environment of a graduate degree at a good school can oh we, yeah can you say can what totally... school you go to or is it does it matter oh yeah, yeah i can i can totally say that so um i graduated with my bachelor's um in 2014 at MIT in physics and I'm now at Harvard finishing um my PhD in Ooh. applied physics Ooh, double and down god damn I mean that sounds very fancy but like to be fair I don't I don't think of my I don't perceive myself in that way like at any in any capacity like yeah. you know when I entered MIT I didn't really have any background in physics at all and I knew a lot of people who even just like came in as freshmen who knew like real analysis and stuff like that and that right. was insanely intimidating to me so though I did like math I think on some level I was just it just was not approachable to me at all, like in a sort of a high-minded or theoretical or abstract capacity. Isn't I was like, yeah, I can do linear algebra and stuff, but <laughs> like not, you know, not not really engage with it in a way that maybe if I had gone somewhere else, I would have felt more but able isn't, to Isn't do. that the American system, right? Like you go into school and you don't even know what you're going to do. It's the first year you're just picking, picking, picking at stuff. You're like, oh, I'll, yeah. I'll study roofing for a semester and it's fine. <laughs> yeah exactly i mean it was a really cool and interesting place but i do think that you know i i can go a little leftist here like you do see a lot of like class disparities recapitulated in uh, how people um like what sort of educational background people sure. have and like what they go into so math was like extremely intimidating to me and i originally wanted to do chemistry but um i realized anything that i liked in chemistry was actually physics so I just figured, you know, I'm just going to struggle through the physics. <laughs> I really liked it. Um, so I mainly do, or I think of myself as like an experimental physicist. Um, though most of what I do actually is simulation <laughs> design and modeling. So um, definitely not as much experiment, but I would consider it like very sort of applied kind of stuff. Does it, does it feel, do you feel any kind of, uh, I'm going to get a little uh, wishy-washy here, but do you feel any kind of like, almost uh like i don't know a spiritual religious connection to it because oh, you're, you're on the forefront you're like you're just examining the world you're you're chipping away at the unknown don't you oh, do you feel yeah. anything like that absolutely so the things that i do basically 
and I can, I'll try to, like, break this down in a way that has the largest sort of, like, audience and reach, because I know, like, you know, every subfield in physics is so intensely specific, you know, to what people do. But basically, I, you know, I work with light and I work with structures called photonic crystals. And uh, a photonic crystal is basically um, a structure that is made out of some material that sort of light can pass through. It could be even glass, so the, the contrast in the, excuse me, the refractive index of light in, um, in air and glass is pretty small, or it could be silicon, it can be it can be all sorts of stuff really. And it's basically a repeated periodic structure. And when you have these sort of periodic structures, light of certain wavelengths can pass through it and some of those wavelengths get reflected back. Um, it's sort of like a um, sort of an extension of like Bragg scattering where you know if you have like a grading certain certain wavelengths of light can sort of transmit or reflect and you get sort of interesting physics and patterns from that so when I do specifically is something that's sort of like an extension of that the concept of the photonic crystal where you have certain wavelengths of light transmitting and reflecting also slowing down the speed of light um, changing the phase of light changing the direction in which it's transmitted you can do all sorts of things and basically altering the optical properties of a medium and how light interacts in it so what i do specifically is work with stuff called um metamaterials and uh, a metamaterial is basically a material that is heterogeneous so it's composed of you know units of stuff that are not necessary that are not homogeneous i know that that sounds kind of that's kind of tautological <laughs> okay what i mean to say is um they are periodic structures in most cases, and basically their optical, or in the case of like mechanics, mechanical properties, they act as if they are just a uniform homogeneous material because the size of the unit cell, or the, sometimes they call them meta atoms, the size of that, that unit is small enough that you can sort of treat this heterogeneous medium like it's homogeneous. And you can do stuff like basically change the inherent optical properties. And what I do is I work with metamaterials where you can basically reduce the refractive index down to zero. And what that Uh. does is it basically stretches out the wavelength of light to infinity. So you have... That's almost like (laughs) a superconductor, right? It's like an analog to it. Absolutely. Maybe not right. necessarily. There are different types of zero index metamaterials right. or like materials with zero index, but particularly if you bring the permittivity down to zero, um, you have something called supercoupling, where if you have this wavelength that is effectively infinite, you could basically couple light into subwavelength structures, into weird bends. You can do all sorts of stuff with light in that way. Mm. And it's very analogous to uh, superconducting materials, definitely. Oh, and for the record, for the listeners, periodic means a repeating pattern. Oh, yeah, a repeating pattern. So um, actually, I can give sort of like a real world example that people might be more... um, that can be sort of more approachable. And I realize I want to be as sort of cast as wide a net as possible. Yeah, go ahead. So like, if you know, like opals, like the the gemstone opal, if you look at them, they have, you know, they reflect all sorts of different colors of light. It looks like a pretty rainbow inside an opal. Mm -hmm. Um, But an opal itself doesn't necessarily have any, any um, chemical structure that gives it color what you're actually seeing in an opal is reflections of different wavelengths of light. And it's because an opal is actually, um, if you look at an opal in a really, really powerful microscope, like an electron microscope, what you'll actually see is that an opal is a structure that is made of these very perfectly ordered spheres of silicon, silica, that is combined with water or like hydrated silica 
And what that does is, like, these very ordered spheres of this material means that in certain wavelengths of light that are on the order of the size of, like, this periodicity, how they are ordered, basically, how far apart these spheres are. Oh, that's... means that certain wavelengths of light will pass through it, and then some of them will get reflected. And the ones that are reflected are the ones that you see in these beautiful colors. And basically what I do is <clears throat> pretty similar to that, though not not spheres. I usually work with pillars, um, pillars that you can pretty easily fabricate in a clean room. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. So, yeah, that's... Um, I feel like that's uh, a pretty easy to get analogy because it's so visual. Another example is, um, for example, you know those like really beautiful blue butterflies, the morpho butterflies? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if you take a look at the structure of their scales under a microscope, what you see are kind of like these very interesting, um, they almost look like Christmas trees of these patterns of like chitin and you know other materials that like bugs are made out of and it's like the how how do i describe it in a way that how do i how do i describe this in words <laughs> like a grating like like a grating so like repeated layers of like this material and what that does because these different layers of this material are so close together the wavelengths of light that are like in the blue spectrum get reflected off of that structure. And that's actually why these butterfly wings are like the, that beautiful, like shiny blue color. It's not from any pigment. It's actually oh. because those structures are reflecting off of, um, are reflecting blue light off of them for that reason. That's great. By the way, you mentioned yeah. opal um, as an example, and that made me uh, realize because you make jewelry is your physics um informing that at all or, like your passion for oh, yeah. optics and stuff i think definitely like i one of the reasons <clears throat> why I, I collect that stuff is really because it sort of fascinates me on the the physical level like it's very funny because um you know i kind of like to make fun of sort of woo stuff like sp kind of quasi spiritual stuff but not really you know how like felix makes fun of the spiritual gangster Right, um, yeah. Well, there's like a lot of there's like a lot of stuff you can find on Tumblrs about like the magical properties of crystals. Oh and yeah, things. sure. And, yeah. You know, a lot of people like who make that sort of jewelry are informed by that, and like if that if that's what you enjoy, like I'm not gonna come after you. I'll, <laughs> I'll let people enjoy things, but um, one of the reasons I think why I'm personally interested in that stuff, and a lot of a lot of the stones that I collect have sort of properties where they're reflecting light in special ways and i think um i mean it's part of that and also because my mom made jewelry when i was a kid so i kind of had a little bit of background going into oh, that nice. um yeah <laughs> so um definitely i haven't had a lot of time lately i have some stuff i do want to put up in the shop but it's great I've been are you, kind are you of... making bank on that or are you are you barely pulling oh a profit? yeah how's it working well, I haven't made stuff in a while just because I've been really, I've been really trying to hustle my finishing the, the, the PhD sure, yeah. and all that. And it's been kind of hard, but oh yeah, like it's the, <laughs> I swear, like this is going to sound bad, but it's like one of the reasons why I don't think I've, <laughs> I will shut down my account or I haven't is because when I do have stuff that I want to sell. I'm not gonna lie, the outreach is great. Oh you know? yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, that's what I always, that's what's keep. That, that's the always. Well, Jesus, that's what always what keeps me from shutting down mine as well. But even though it's sort of moot because I go like, oh well, I have an audience for anything I make that I find fulfilling, yeah, and it's like exactly. I haven't made anything in a while, uh, but it's it's still that's there, okay. and I'm gonna I'm gonna hold yeah. on to that. You should, but also because you're. You, you're so funny and clever and you're like one of those people where I see your tweets and like how does he think of this shit I'm just I have this level of envy like Spencer and I are just like we'll talk to each other I'm like he's too powerful how does he think of it oh that's very nice thank you can you give me by the way can you paint a picture for me indulge me here um of like the arc like what's an archetypical archetypical person that you hate 
that you, that you encountered at MIT, for example? Like, what's a bad oh, person? Yeah. Oh, do, you, do we want a dish? I can, yeah, I can give yeah. you so much. That's all okay. I want to hear. Oh, I can give you all the gossip about being in physics. Yeah. So, you know, when I, you know, I'm from, like, I'll give you some of my background. Like, I'm from a, a very low-income area. Um, I'm from a very low-income school district, and when I came to MIT, it was like, you know, there were a lot of these kids that, you know, have all of this insane background. Yeah, you must have been surrounded physics. by people who went to these sort of STEM prep schools and stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, all the STEM, all the STEM magnet and prep schools. Yeah, like, yeah. all of those kids are there. And they have their own sort of little cliques and things like that. Mm. And it was extremely intimidating to me. But basically, at MIT especially as you go into like math and physics classes, but just in general, you always have like, we put it in quotes, that guy. And that guy is a person, that guy can be a girl, by the way. Mm -hmm. That guy is like, you know, the most insane tryhard that you've ever seen in terms of trying to prove that they know a lot of stuff oh, about yeah. math and physics. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes they really come across as not super approachable and it you know it's just like you see these people and you're like oh god it's just it's stressful <laughs> and it's alienating and yeah and it becomes a very macho thing and they don't oh. it's like they don't want to share their knowledge unless they're sort of no. declaring it like a town crier it's very irritating i i encounter a lot it of is. that guy as well yeah, there's always that guy. Yeah. And you're right. Like, it's hard to call. It's funny to call it machismo because, like, we're talking about a bunch of dorks. But, like, it oh, is yeah. It is its own form of whatever that is. In, like, in, like the, in the social pyramid of a physics course, they're, they're the machismo. They're, like, that's how, yeah. that's how you, their idea of sort of rising to the top. It's very pathetic. I, I, I remember people like that. It's also oh, extra yeah. bad when they're not even... If they are really good at physics, you can at least be like, well, you know, I guess, guess this is how this is how they determine their own sense of self worth. But then sometimes yeah. it's someone who isn't even, who's like, isn't even in the upper echelon, and that's even worse, kind of. Oh yeah, there are a lot of people who it's like just them bloviating because yeah. they feel insecure. And Ooh, I mean, yeah. for me, I was just sort of like intimidated to the point where I wouldn't raise my hand and oftentimes those people kind of foster an environment where you feel stupid for like asking basic questions or asking yeah, things yeah, that seem definitely. you know basic or simple but oftentimes those simple questions are really are what gonna what's gonna get you to learn and, yeah. if and most most feel, of the most of the other people feel grateful that you asked it if you do oh my god yeah like it you know anybody who asks the simple questions is it extremely brave like they deserve like those are the people who really make the big difference they should, those board, are the heroes. They should board first on the airplane <laughs> they should yeah because um it's sort of like there's i feel like you're right a lot of those people have those basic questions but if you're afraid to ask those you're not going to be able to learn properly and if you can't if you feel like you can't expose yourself to discussing what you don't know or what you don't understand it's going to be so much harder for you to learn that and it's going to make an environment where it's harder for other people to learn yeah. and beyond that level i'm so i'm i was always so bad at that i i, I even by the end of my degree i couldn't really ask the simple questions oh, i was so i was terrified yeah yeah in fact, like, I still think to an extent i am sort of terrified but i think when you have when you go far enough and I'm not saying that, like, I'm that good at whatever. But when you go far enough, it's just, like, the amount of time that you're exposed to things sort of builds up. And when you're in something that's so specialized, like, you know, a very specific subfield, like, whatever I'm doing or whatever anybody else does, you do feel a little bit more comfortable asking some basic questions just because, yeah. you know, a lot of these questions are more open and, you know, people want to people do want to help and they'll refer you to like a source or you know there's a lot of different ways that you can get this information i think once you are doing research 
it is a lot more openly acceptable to sort of ask questions versus oftentimes a classroom environment. And that feels like pretty counterproductive, right? Like you should, you know, theoretically in a classroom, you should be able to ask a bunch of basic questions, but (laughs) it's somehow way scarier than just like asking somebody else that you do research with like a question on something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What is, so what is, what is the, do you think, do you find, have you like thought it out? Like what is the, fundamental appeal of this stuff to you that that sort of trumps other subjects and things like that well i think part of it that's kind of funny because i do think that part of when when you're doing research a lot of it is that you just sort of stumble upon something and it feels comfortable and you kind of stay in that because of that comfort and i think i'll be honest like there is a part of that for me because now, you know, I will look at other research and I think, oh, wow, that is really interesting. And I would be interested in studying that, you know, had things broken a little differently. Um, but I think for me in particular, I really did enjoy the sort of interface between optics because I thought optics was interesting and then also the sort of quantum aspect. So, um yeah how light interacts with atoms, how they emit, how they absorb light, how they emit photons, um, how you can change those processes. I think it was cool because it's sort of at the interface of these two things. And I think that's why I liked it. So, um, what about physics in general? Oh, I just, I just like, I just really liked it. I think that I know that's like, that's so basic, (laughs) you know, I just, I, I, cause I liked it. Um, but I do think there was that sort of, as you sort of described, maybe sort of like spiritual or like slightly meditative aspect about it, understanding the fundamental processes of how light works, how atoms work, and how they, you know, how these sort of microscopic properties affect how we view the world on a a larger or macroscopic scale. I thought that stuff was always like super cool. Yeah. And I do think that um, when I work in um, sort of these metamaterials where you're changing the fundamental like properties of light and matter um, on a scale that you can actually engineer, because a lot of this is for structures that we can fabricate um, in a, a clean room setting, it was sort of like you can tailor and engineer these very fundamental um, properties. And that's so interesting it's not like you're playing god but you are kind of like engineering how light works and i thought that was super cool yeah that there is, is nice. and, um and you know while it is funny like i was always sort of intimidated by math i do think that as i sort of got older and studied the stuff more there is a lot of sort of like abstract math explanations that you can use to sort of describe why some of this stuff works the way it does and i think that was kind of the entryway of me being more interested in math because it gave me more of a physical intuition instead of feeling so intimidated by stuff like um like i don't know group theory and rings sure. and you know fundamental symmetries group, and all that group stuff group theory and like pure math and stuff is is so good i i love it and also what i love about it is it's i mean okay group theory isn't useless but in the sense that like um there's the feynman quote about like uh physics is like uh sex we sure it has some practical applications <laughs> yeah. but that's not why we do it um it's like uh pure math it's just people playing with lego in their heads it's not no one's doing it's it so because it cool. has any practical real world applications and it's really interesting and if it was if it had no um bearing on the real world they would still do it because it's an immensely satisfying oh, yeah. thing and it's the, the it's defined to be satisfying it's sort of tautologically people making these rules that are very satisfying and and just seeing what happens um and it, what's funny about it is it's as quote unquote like cla- it's as sort of classically useless as um, any kind of humanities degree. But if I were to tell my parents' friends that I was studying pure math, they'd sort of raise their eyebrows in appreciation and go like, "Wow, that sounds like hard. You must be doing." Whereas, oh, yeah. like, if I said, I don't know, like any any of the things like uh, uh, Ben Shapiro would complain about people studying at university, um, you don't get the same level of respect. <laughs> and that's what I like about it as well. It's a nice little social. Uh, it's like a fake social um, signifier. Sometimes. Oh yeah, there. I definitely 
there is a, an amount of like social capital that goes off in my brain when somebody tells me that they study math because like it's something that I respect so much to the extent that I was too much of a pussy to study pure math. <laughs> so like <laughs> when I see when I see somebody else doing it, like I have that level of respect that they did what I could not. Um, especially and when you mentioned like the the Legos, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I. I love that analogy and actually it's the Lego analogy is sort of funny because the way we think about in my fields, like these structures that I'm talking about, these very orderly structures that are heterogeneous that have, but have uniform optical properties. A lot of the, the building blocks of these structures are kind of like Legos. Oh yeah. Sure. Yeah. The unit cells and you know, yeah, yeah, the unit cell is basically a Lego piece. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it, while there is kind of like a broader application that we can think of, we're still at the point where it's so experimental that really it, it is us just playing with stuff. It's, you know, we're playing with the same sort of Legos, except it's for physics and versus, yeah. the, and versus the, the theoretical math aspect. Group theory in particular is so Lego-like in that, like, it's just... It's almost like people sat down and went like, "What's the most satisfying mathematical object we can come up with?" and they and they did it. So cool. I mean, it's like uh, since the begin- like humans are primed to seek out symmetry. It 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 uh, pervades yes. everything, every all the art we've ever made. Like it's just right. one of the most basic ways that we perceive beauty. Um, and it's all oh, to yeah, do with absolutely. like you know using minimal information. If you reflect things, then you you can convey less information for someone to replicate an object. If it's like got rotational or flip symmetry or something. Right. And exactly. then so group theory is all about studying symmetry, basically. Exactly, and it's funny because I was so scared of group theory when I was in college, but when I entered grad school and was working with these these structures, it's actually group theory is absolutely essential to understanding how some of these properties behave and work and why they do the things they do um especially like point group symmetries because these are regular ordered structures and you can have different patterns but at the end of the day they all observe some sort of fundamental symmetries which can help you determine um their properties do you work with wallpaper groups a lot or is that something oh no i don't i feel like it could very well be that somebody else does that work for a more complex kind of structure, maybe right. something a little bit more theoretical, but yeah. not personally. I mainly just work with like point group symmetries. So like um, you can have six fold symmetry or like C6, you yeah, can have sure. four fold, you know, and of course like translational symmetry, it's periodic. So you can, you can make it so that these problems are easier to solve mathematically. So and also, like, these these symmetries can also determine, you know, what direction the light propagates in. So you can, or you can break the symmetry and make the light propagate in a different way because of, you know, because of disorder. So it's actually funny that I was so scared of group theory, but it's actually totally essential to understanding how things like photonic crystals or even, um, even actual, like, real-world materials, like graphene or like any any solid state material you really do actually have to have that sort of intuition with group theory to understand like why a material behaves the way right. that it does do you do the thing where they put sellotape on graphite and they remove <laughs> one layer of it oh so that's really funny i did that in college uh. i i worked in a group that did that and all of that work i'd say it's of course like intensely detail oriented it is fun though because i i i guess because i i also like doing jewelry that i like (laughs) kind of working with my hands and things um but yeah it is very it can be very labor intensive um yeah i mean it seems so uh meticulous you you put i think yeah so you put sellotape on on graphite and you remove it and you've removed sort of one uh atom wide layer of it right atom Mm -hmm. thick layer of it yeah Oh, mama. Oh, yeah. It's so funny. And then you do that several times with the tape. And then you put the tape. You have to put the tape on a slide that has, like, a piece of, like, silicone that has, like, a a polymer that you, you spin on it. And you have to remove the tape from that without breaking anything. And that takes about, like, five or ten minutes of just 
trying to unroll the tape off of that slide without breaking any of the, the layer of the polymer. So you can look under a microscope and see if you find any any um, single layer graphene. And it's like, it's hard to look at through the microscope too. It's like, yeah, it's an insane amount of detail. Um, though this was like back in 2012. So I imagine that the groups who do this are have a little bit more sophistication now because they've just through all of the trial and error of what they do. Right. But yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I talked about what's satisfying about math, but what's immensely satisfying about physics to me is, I don't know, we're all plopped, plopped into this reality that seems infinitely strange. And you sort of, oh, yeah. if you just look at it as a sort of meta, like meta narrative over the course of history, it's just this constant refinement. You keep finding theorems that slightly like slight incrementally improve on this theory of the world they they map ev like ever so slightly more and more to uh, the way things work it's like you're you keep refining a sculpture of the world um it is. just over and over again and when you talk to like math people who are kind of um i don't know uh are kind of dismissive about physics the thing they always say is like oh whatever you're learning now um uh, they'll it'll be proven wrong in 20 years you know and it's like well these these things that you like uh, just erroneous theories in physics were there for a reason they were an improvement on a previous yeah. theory they still like um of course. they they were there because they described something about the world very accurately usually it's yeah, not like um absolutely. none of them were mistakes um it's kind no, of it's never. very beautiful to me anyway and that's the thing, like even in my own time, I've made so many mistakes in sort of my understanding of stuff and having to go back and change it over and over again. But if I hadn't had done that, I wouldn't have learned anything. I wouldn't have been able to develop the techniques and way of thinking to be able to spot when something's wrong, right? And it's like in any of the cases where you have work that's published or theory that, you know, people postulate, a lot of the methodologies that they still use, even if the conclusions aren't necessarily correct or, um, or verified by experiment, a lot of those methodologies are still extremely useful and you can still build upon them to create a, a model of the world or a model of whatever you're studying that is closer to nature, that is more correct. Yeah. You, you need that. It's necessary. You have to make mistakes and make stuff that is incorrect. Otherwise, you won't be able to actually work upon it and figure out something that is correct you know yeah. what is frustrating about things like a, a academic level physics or math or um uh like if you've ever talked to somebody who studies philosophy as well you get the same thing it's if you're interested in it it's so hard to communicate any of it to someone who isn't sort of doesn't have at least a pretty w good foundation um, definitely uh, and that, I don't that doesn't exist in the same way with like if you're really interested in painting and know a ton about it you can really communicate most of it most of the time like it's it's really um, it's so hard to do that when when so when you've you're basically speaking a different language with with right. these things you know yeah and I I think that to really be good at explaining a lot of physics on a a level that is <clears throat> very approachable to a broader audience you have to be really good at it to not just good at it but good on a way that you can have the intuition to describe it in a way that sounds more intuitive to a broader audience it does that's seem really like difficult. Feynman Richard Feynman was this like singular talent at doing that kind of stuff oh yeah yeah, yeah definitely I mean I do think that in that way, he was kind of a, a virtuoso. Like, obviously, there's a lot of conversations nowadays about, like, his more, like, problematic aspects. But putting, setting that aside and just looking at his lectures and how he explains a lot of the stuff, he was uniquely um, gifted at that. I, I agree. Mm, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I'm even finding in this conversation, because what I do is so extremely visual, a lot of it has to do with fabrication and modeling. It is really hard for me to sort of explain this in a way that is, that oh, is yeah. like, you know, approachable to a general audience. I, I was, I, I was, uh, I may, I'm probably going to chop this out of, of the episode, um, but I was talking, no not this, not this, I'm talking about uh, the episode I did with Sridhar Ramesh um, yesterday. Oh, 
Oh yeah. Oh fabulous. I'm on... gonna definitely listen to that. Oh, I have him on a lot. I've had him on like three times. Mm. <laughs> give, give those a go. But I, I asked yeah. him. I was like, oh, quick aside, uh, explain the direct delta function. And he was talking about it. And because he's so advanced in math, I think he sort of forgets oh, yeah. sometimes that uh, most people have no idea what you're... He was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's a special uh, distribution where if you integrate it against another function... I was like, people are going to know what integrating against another function means. They don't know what integrating means half the time. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. It was like, um, there is a sort of uh, vaguely... Um, uh, intuition uh in intuitional way to to describe the, the delta function but he, right. he was not doing it i'm gonna have to cut it out because it's like 10 minutes of of like uh jargon basically for anyone who who hasn't taken a, a, a first year math course well it's the solution if you put this into the greens function yeah, you yeah, get this basically. value yeah it's yeah. basically that um yeah it's that's kind of hard to to think i mean i guess you can i guess probably the easiest way to think about the direct delta function in terms of quantum mechanics is i mean you wouldn't describe the word fourier transform to a general audience but you could talk about like the particle wave duality and what that means and you know using it that as like a, a physical you know a oh way like to the collapsing you just talk about the collapsing yeah. and stuff yeah i think all i'd just say is like oh imagine a a graph that uh or like no, I I think I'd go for the limit the limit thing where you're like um, oh, yeah. you talk about a step function that sort of uh, or not step just a rectangle that um, just you shrink it at the origin and maintain the area mm-hmm, and you take the mm-hmm, limit of that. Mm-hmm. And, but whatever. Uh, there's look quick quick side note. Fuck mathematicians. They always p- piss on the the, the direct function. Who cares? It's cool. Or you know what I would say I would I would have the most basic way of explaining it. Oh, oh Dirac delta function. Yeah, your mom is skinny <laughs> in momentum space. <laughs> there you go. There you oh, go, ladies and gents. I just remember like I who said that to me in college, but like we all we all freaking said that to each other in college. Like you know, <laughs> we felt so cool. It was yeah, 2012. Cool physics humor. <laughs> we were we were making rage comics with stuff like that what i fucking hate is like um uh like uh matthew like you ever go on the you were you ever part of that like mathematical memes facebook group or stuff like that oh yeah where it was just like you you could be kind of funny with math stuff but it was just like people saying they knew about equations to each other it was very weird oh yeah i'm sure there's a lot of that like it all of that stuff is intensely reddit like yeah You know, it's it's a lot of people with the Reddit mindset, you know, trying to think that they're cool because mm. they, you know, they know math. And while I agree, a lot of math is cool. Um, I do like that Reddit has become so popular that it's now syn- synonymous with just uh, anyone who's just vaguely lame <laughs> now. It's, yeah. It's cool. <laughs> That's how you know. Because I'm older, I'm I'm 29. So back when I was in college, like Reddit was a place where, especially like all the nerds were on. We were all on Reddit, and I I think part of my like internet cultural heritage, unfortunately, is like so immersed in that that I'll never be able to escape it. Oh yeah, me too. I I was on I was on Reddit as a teen though. I guess um I I started off okay. What was my what was my journey? I guess I started off with funnyjunk.com. And then oh, I yeah. moved on to Reddit. Uh, mm-hmm. There must have been something in between there. I, I don't know. Um, I didn't have a 4chan phase. I feel like I've been... I did not. I don't have, any, I don't have my, my gold star. I don't know. 4chan is a thing that I discovered when I, I joined Twitter when I was depressed in my earlier phase of grad school. <laughs> and that's basically when I joined, when I started actually posting on Twitter. And then I discovered people who used 4chan. I'm like, wow. Wow. Um, were you, so you, were you uh, head buried in the internet when you were a kid? Not, okay. So it's really funny because I think that I was kind of on the internet during a, a sort of precipice where we were, sort of getting into where it was sort of expanding culturally and more and more people were going on, you know, these websites, whether it was Reddit or 4chan or I guess something awful. Right. And I think in the beginning, I wasn't on any of those in high school. I was kind of a, 
I was I was a bit of a shut in, and I spent a lot of my time on music forums, which sounds really weird, but like I was on like the Bjork music forum oh, and the radio, <laughs> the Radiohead music forum what back a place in like two thousand. Incredible. I was, was I was incredible. a huge Radiohead fan in in, oh, in, yeah. uh, in high school. I knew I knew, I had I had an album on my iPod Classic that was all of their B sides. Um, oh so yeah. So I, I could I could still probably recognize any any Radiohead song. Uh. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was like super into all of that. You mm. know. I was like I think I was a sophomore in high school when In Rainbows came out, and I was just oh yeah. Oh, there you go. So obsessed. Did you get it? Did you pay zero zero dollars for it? I paid zero dollars for good. it. I remember there was one Friday afternoon where, like, it was 2007 and YouTube was new, and, like, Tom York posted a video of him playing Unravel by Bjork on the piano, and oh, I was like, wow, this go. is this is a high point Scotch, in culture. Scotch Mist. The Scotch Mist video on YouTube. I don't know if you remember oh, that. Oh, yeah. That was all, that was, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like a live, a live performance thing of a few in radio, in Rainbow's tracks. Oh god! Just amazing. Yeah, it is weird so, yeah. how like because I I feel like Radiohead are kind of like um, when I was a kid I used to eat a lot of ketchup. I used to eat. I used to I used to have plain pasta with ketchup. That was a a, a meal that I could stand as a seven year old for some reason. I mean, That's I awesome. actively liked it. Um, now to me, I can't imagine anything more disgusting. But I overexerted myself. I can't eat ketchup anymore. Um, and I feel like I om- I kind of did that with Radiohead as well, where I listened to I so too, much, yeah. and now I, I, it's not that I can't listen to them, it's just that I don't. And when I do hear them, I really like them still. Um, but Oh yeah, I'm the same way with like Bjork as well. I mean, I still love her very intensely, but it's sort of the thing where when I listen to some of her songs, or Radiohead songs, for example, it just takes me back to a period where I was so young that... Right. It's really hard because it's so formative to me. It's really hard to to listen to it and not take myself back to a very specific point in yeah. my, you know, my young adulthood. Do you do you look upon your high school years with <laughs> rose tinted glasses? Do you love it? Not at all. Of course I mean, not. It was pretty miserable. Yeah. And I think, you know, there were definitely things that I would have done much differently. But I think because I was like this nerdy kid, I wasn't just nerdy, but I was from like a, a very low income family in a low income area and I was like, how am I gonna be able to afford going to college? And I was like this nerdy kid and I did well in school and they were like, Well, if you go to a place like for example, like MIT, you go for free, you know, in your income bracket. So I spent all this time just like trying to find any way I could like get into a school where I, I could get I could get a full scholarship because that's the only way I could have afforded to go into college. And I was in this really sort of like rough school district. And I think I kind of isolated myself maybe too much in trying, you know, in that sort of pursuit just because I wanted to like help out my family and make things easier for them. And I think I really stressed myself out like a lot unnecessarily. There were a lot of things I could have done differently that I, I wouldn't have realized at the time. Um, but I think, yeah, I was a bit too much of a shut-in because I was too stressed out. And it made it so that when I went to college, I don't think I was, like, super socially well-adjusted. It took a little while. Sure. But, I mean, eventually it got there. But, yeah, for sure it was it was definitely a process for me. Um, uh, I know a lot of people that can't really watch uh, coming-of-age movies because it's always, like, Here's a teenager whose life is better than yours, basically, <laughs> like, or who's oh, yeah. who had a better experience at high school. Even though, like coming of coming of age movies are all about people having tumultuous um, right. transitionary stages, but it's still like a very um, substantive uh, life they're living, and it's like just not most people's experience of high school. I think. Um, right. So, like, I'll watch of like course. Lady Bird, which is. Uh, I don't know, a film about a girl having a pretty holistically interesting uh, uh, growing up experience, even though there are like yeah. problems. The the whole point is like it's life is messy and she, she sort of uh, this is all about growth and stuff. It's like I didn't fucking none of this happened for me. <laughs> like, yeah. this is, I can't watch this. Yeah, definitely. I've heard of Lady Bird. I haven't seen it. it it's like an eight. Is it one of those A24 movies that people talk yeah. about? Yeah. Yeah it's it's one of those i i'm sure i'll watch it at some point um <laughs> i enjoyed yeah. it but it did make me sad yeah like 
my yeah like my my high school experience was like what if emily dickinson was boring and lame like (laughs) you know like that was you know i not a lot happened for me i was i spent a lot of it feeling kind of sad feeling kind of lonely complaining too much because of that because i wasn't like very well socialized you know what's you know what's the kicker is uh, if i see someone from high school uh now i mean i don't have too many friends left from that but like uh uh i'll sort of before meeting them or like I'll, I'll or even just in a general sense i'll think like oh if i ever run into someone from high school they'll be impressed at like the fact that i'm a human being now basically like that yeah, same. and then what you realize is these people who were kind of i don't know maybe more um uh realized in high school than you were have also been growing at the same rate so they're still ahead yeah, of you exactly. <laughs> in some ways like I do feel like I could talk to a lot of people from high school right. now and be like, oh, yeah, we can actually bond way more than uh, I did yeah, back yeah, then. Yeah, for sure. And because I now have the perspective of, like, going to nerd school and, like, seeing how different people were from me. And when I entered college, I didn't realize, like, I did have so many more unique experiences that kind of informed my background than a lot of people from, like, wealthier communities or even, like, you know, more rigorous school communities because I grew up, you know, I grew up in this really sort of tough area in a tough neighborhood where there was a lot of sort of drug problems that I experienced firsthand and people who I saw, you know, in these experiences. And though I was very socially isolated, there was a part of me that was more in touch with you know the with the real world with people who were suffering and who had a lot of these issues that those people did not encounter so oh, like yeah sure. you know when that when i came back because i'm i'm from a i'm from a community called fall river i guess that doesn't make any sense because you're in england so you, yeah. you're not an american <laughs> um but it's like it's a tough it's a tough area in massachusetts versus Cambridge, Massachusetts, which has like Harvard and MIT. And I realized like I was, I had so much more of like a real world experience than a lot of other people, though I was like very socially isolated. And I really did come to respect that more, like as I went through all of this that I had. There's something about, uh, there's something about the sort of uh, growing up very preppy with uh, on top of that, sort of parents that really push you and are kind of overbearing, uh, it's sort of like this stifling effect. Uh, yeah. These people, like, they weren't really allowed to experience anything other than, um, like, oh, okay, so on Mondays I, I swim for three hours because I need to sort of maybe tr- get into, get on the varsity team or something, and then I need to do this and do all these extracurriculars. And it's, it's like... Uh, I don't know. It's like these parents are committed to making their kids boring sometimes. Oh, yeah, it is. Like, and you know, part of me wishes that, like, I had done sports in high school and I had all of that because I do, I like doing sports now, which is funny. But, like, yeah, it, you know, my family did not push me in those respects. If anything, it was like they were, they were motivated insofar that they knew I was motivated and they knew to help me you know pursue what i wanted and they realized it would help them because then they wouldn't have to worry about me financially at all but they didn't push me in any respects they loved me they loved me very much they loved me very much back then but they were not people who pushed me like in any respect you know they let's talk exercise what exercise are you doing Oh, I, 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 I'm doing powerlifting, or at least I am doing a powerlifting routine, and then I'm going to get a coach because I just like it. It's just fun. Very good. It, it does have that sort of meditative feel to me. Spencer and I talk a lot about lifting, too. It's yeah. just like, it's just fun. And for me, it's always like, I, I enjoy doing things that maybe wouldn't be expected for my size because I'm four foot ten and there's something kind of funny about being really short and not very big and wanting to lift heavy stuff so I just thought it's just like really fun um there's something so holistic uh about deadlifts for me I I, I I love them uh yeah there's something like whenever I'm done with them I feel uh 
like the world just sort of clicks <laughs> it's really yes. good do you get emotional after ex- after that kind of exercise oh, i yeah. always feel like more o- i feel like i want to cry sometimes it's very weird it is it's sometimes yeah. elating like yesterday i had a new pr and it was amazing and i think especially for the deadlift because it's on the ground and because when you fail it it's not like it's going to injury it's not going to injure you in the same way that dropping a barbell on top of your chest is if you're doing a bench press yeah like you really get into this sort of meditative mood where you're like you get into the zone you really you know you prep yourself and then you just prepare for like this one really intense movement of picking up something that is very heavy for you know for whatever your size is and like that is it is really cool i think because i'm in my head a lot because of work and everything and you know, I think academia can be stressful. It is just, like, a really nice way of grounding myself in a way of, like, keeping it so that, like, when I'm trying to seek some kind of release, I don't just do that on the internet. (laughs) And I've never never found something that so reliably um, gets you sort of out of a funk or just sort of, people sort of, I I don't want to mythologize it, but, like, it's, like, three hours of a guaranteed improved mood, at least. Absolutely. And I think with my anxiety, like I deal with a lot of anxiety and I've, I've dealt with depression sort of more so in the past, but like it really does, it really sort of does help me out of that. Like if anything, for me, it's almost more mental than it is physical. I know that sounds like super like Reddit to say, but (laughs) it does feel like that for me. No, I get it. It's definitely like that for me because I don't eat enough. So I'm literally only doing it to feel better. It doesn't, it doesn't chisel me too much. Um, but there's, there's, uh, I feel like, I feel like I was kind of done dirty a bit by the way people talk about mental health sometimes on the internet, like growing up as a teenager, and, I don't know, no one's that happy when they're, when they're 16 and right. being told like that it's some immutable part of you, like it's all brain chemistry and, uh, it, it shouldn't, um, like, uh, everyone should just deal with it and, and no one has any right to tell you that you have any sort of agency here. It, it's not great. And then like, no, like I, people always dismissively say things and I, I totally understand getting annoyed at someone suggesting you take up jogging, uh, in a sort of condescending oh, yeah, way. Sure. But when people, um, post some meme about like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, Ooh, my depression, um, versus someone telling me to try jogging and it's sort of i don't know it's formatted in a way that implies that the person trying to telling you that is is wrong it's like my immediate reaction to that is kind of like sometimes like well okay but do you have you tried it It, it, it'll help you a little you give it a go and that's the thing i i do think that there's a sort of false dichotomy there where it's like yes i telling somebody to drink more water when they're depressed is patronizing and unhelpful however that doesn't mean that there are ways that you can go about to make to make improvements to change your mind to improve your mindset to you know get yourself out of your head to ground yourself and to sort of create these mechanisms and strategies for yourself to help you feel better like it's not one or the other and there's definitely like this sort of thing where it's you know, people saying that there's nothing that you can do to improve it or like there's no personal choices that you can make to make your situation better. And then and then this sort of thing where it's like you should drink more water and none of the neither of those are helpful strategies. Right. Also, you know, I'm going to un- I'm going to unsheathe my uh, condescending Anglo sword right now. But um, go right ahead. Uh, Americans don't realize how like uniquely medicated they are as a country. Like, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. my God. Just um, I don't know. There's a lot of like feeding your kids pop tarts and uh, putting them on um, Adderall because they're hyper at school that morning. I don't know. It just yeah. uh, it does seem like there's a lot of needless medication or like um, like uh, medicating before like getting everything else in order. You know, right. like you should make sure your life you're, that you're doing everything you can that's like in your immediate control before you resort to medication. But it seems like a lot right. of people aren't doing that because they're not because it's I don't know. There's a culture of medication over Definitely. there. Definitely, I think it really is the byproduct of the the treat economy in America. And what I mean by that is sort of like this instant gratification 
that's developed through either, yeah, like feeding your kids Pop-Tarts, but also just, like, giving them lots of medication without the additional, like, therapy or, like, inner work that you can help them with, or, you know, environmental changes that parents could do to actually help their kids or you know changing their parenting techniques also to help improve their kids like yeah, it's, it's just real. it's so tough. it's just the consumption aspect and none of the additional changes to parenting or behavior that can be done to also help improve that that's not to say that in like certain situations like medications aren't extremely helpful like of course they can be you know i I take a low dose antidepressant for for OCD and anxiety and like yeah that helps of course but you know I also have to make sure that like I'm using I'm in trying to employ mindfulness in order to also help improve right. how I feel otherwise like that it's not going to do enough at all on its own. Are you a meditator? I do like meditating. I, I, it does help a lot just to, you know, clear, clear your mind. I have a lot of mental static and it can be very distracting to me um, because I'm, I'm just in my head a lot. And when your thoughts are pacing like that, it is really nice to find ways to calm them down so you can focus better for sure. Mm. And like, I don't take Adderall or any of that stuff, and I imagine that it does also that does also help you to focus. But I don't think it would offer me any additional improvements because stuff like Adderall are they're also stimulants, and I feel like it would just make me more anxiety prone. <laughs> I feel like my life's uh, getting a little boring. I want to develop an Adderall addiction. Just ooh, mainline that stuff. Really, <laughs> really get into my art. <laughs> like, yeah. Know. So I have I have one Adderall story. In college, I had a test I was really stressed out for, and one of my friends was like, "Yo, do you want to try an Adderall? Like, I, you might like it." And I decided <laughs> like it's to a take party a... drug. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's like a study drug. And oh she yeah, was, like, of course, yeah. Really yeah, into really, it. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'll take an. You know, I'll take. It was either like half an Adderall or an Adderall. Like I'm 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 short, so I don't think I took the whole thing. Um. So I took it, and I'm like, wow, this shit sucks. <laughs> like, um. I just feel more stressed out. Like, I was already, you know, I already felt the internal pressure to, like, study for this exam so I don't do bad. But, like, now it just feels like the world is ending on top of it. And, like, <laughs> it depend the world depends on it. And I was like, you know, I don't think this is for me. Adderall's funny because you have to make sure you have to make sure your uh, uh you've got everything in order because if you take it and your facebook window's open you're just gonna spend seven hours on facebook oh my god like i can't imagine taking an adderall in my room when it be perfectly clean because i would just freak <laughs> out about like all the stuff you know right yeah yeah it's tough stuff yeah I, I yeah i want i want to get into adderall like kill as many organs as i can by the time i'm 30 I think that's a good sort of speed run. Oh, wait, I remember what I was going to ask you. You said you were 29. I saw a viral tweet the other day that said 23 is the worst stage and it's not until you're 27 that and stuff stuff starts going well that you realize it was. Uh can you can you confirm or deny it? Is are you are you uh have you sorted everything out and was 23 the worst stage for you? I disagree. I mean, I think it's that's such a, you know, I love when tweets like that go viral because they're always going to go viral because, of course, there's going to be enough people who identify oh, yeah. with that experience. But for me, it's more like I've just developed more maturity since then on an emotional level and right. discovered more things about myself, discovered how important stuff like self-esteem and, you know, trusting yourself, like just very basic life lessons. You know, I think that I didn't know a lot of those basic life skills when I was 23. I mean, I still think I had a level of intellectual maturity, but there was a lot of life experience that I was missing out on right. at that point. But that's not necessarily the case for all like 23-year-olds. Like I can't speak to be for fair, other I think that tweet was maybe the the desired audience for that tweet are people who aren't doing PhDs and like because 23 is normally the year after you graduate right so like they're right. in the midst of this sort of uh, directionless sort of post uh, graduate year where they don't really know what they're doing 
Um, right. I suppose that may be different. What do you want to do with your stuff? Oh, I mean, I think for the longest time I wanted to go into academia because I do love research and I do love physics and I, I love all of that stuff. But the longer I go on and the stress of COVID and trying to get other aspects of my life arranged in a way where I feel genuinely happy with myself and where I'm going has kind of changed that a bit. And it's mainly because, you know, I kind of realized that when you are in graduate school, there is kind of this, I felt like some aspects of my, other aspects of myself in my life are delayed. You know, when you're in academia, when you're in grad school, it always, it kind of always feels like you're a perpetual child. (laughs) And knowing how intensely competitive the academia is when you are trying to go into faculty positions, seeing a lot of people around me be extremely unhappy with it and the stress of it and all of the sort of, um, what's the word? It's unpredictability because you know, you can be working as a um, associate or assistant professor and you can lose tenure and you have to completely redirect your life. And I've seen so many people go through that. And coming from a very sort of like low income um, family and a family that is still struggling financially, I don't know if I can reasonably do that knowing their situation as well. So I do think, and I know this really sucks, I do think after I graduate, while I will be spending some additional time finishing my experiment, finishing my work, really closing that chapter after I graduate, so I'll be there in probably my same group as a postdoc for a little while, I am going to get a job. And I would like to get an industry-based job that is not evil. And that's really hard. <laughs> that is really and, hard. You know, it does seem like think- every... Because I don't know, I'm looking for jobs and I'm so scared of making any kind of career move. But um, it seems like all the jobs that aren't uh, hellish uh, or like, I don't know, pay a little more are these are either evil or just um, so sort of superfluous that they feel evil. I don't know. like right. the, Yeah, they feel like, uh, oh, God, I, I've been spiraling about this for a while. For a quantum oh, physicist, yeah. you're very scared of uncertainty. yeah no it's true and it's you know when I learn about the sort of career opportunities I have it's like well obviously I don't want to go into defense contract work like that's probably prime evil number one right but then there are other things like you know there's a lot of research and development that's cool and like there's a lot of cool research and development at Amazon for quantum physics which sounds really weird but like do I want to work oh is it like quantum computing they do have quantum computing. They so I I personally the material that I work with for fabrication is diamond, and Amazon does have work in diamond. Oh, yeah, they in use Fox those in the, use it in their servers and stuff, don't they? Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, and I mean for this, it's it's mainly pure like quantum information research and development. And I have some friends who work there, and they really like it. And that's the, that's the thing. It's like it's still Amazon, and they realize like there is that knowledge that they have too. And there's like places like IBM where it's sort of like I, you know, when you graduate and you, if you're a person that sort of has class consciousness, you really do feel like this sort of like conflict of like we're you know what work do I do that is interesting and has cool R&D and doesn't sort of overall conflict with my personal world okay I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one final question as a sort of censoring exercise um, to close us out Uh, Olivia imagine yourself you are 65 years old you're walking around your domicile in the best possible future of your life. What what is happening? What what are you reflecting on? What do you see? Sixty five years old. Yeah. Um. Well, I would still obviously care about understanding the world. You know, there's, I you know, you develop a certain mindset when you study physics, and I think that always sort of stays with you. But I think really, I want to be living. 
on a ranch or somewhere in nature with like a bunch of dogs and cats and having a, a stable and happy life at, to whatever capacity I'm capable of, you know, in that future where it, everything already seems so precarious that it's so hard to conceptualize what's going to happen in the world at that point. <laughs> That's a good. Well, this is the best possible future. Remember. Oh, the best possible yeah, future. Yeah. Then I'm just doing that. Like I'm, I'm living on a ranch with a bunch of rescue dogs, and you know, I have family and people around that I care about and that's that's my future or my best possible future um and because really I think like in that case where I'm just like living in a cottage or whatever like I'd still you know I'd still be reading about physics and learning about it and doing cool stuff yeah. and I I feel that a lot of people who study physics like I'm sure you've read this you know, about Oppenheimer and Feynman and a, a lot of other physicists and mathematicians who have to come to grips with the fact that a lot of their research and work can be done or used to create horrific things and mm. things that can... Yeah, you're going to find out about a special optics bomb that was made using your oh, research. Oh my God, can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. That'd so nice. um, I feel like that's the dilemma of a lot of a lot of people who do STEM, any any STEM person who has that sort of social consciousness has to come to grips with that at some point, you know, when they move on in their career. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, I mean, there's that statistic that's always said about, or the fact that, the factoid they always say about the military is that it's like 10 years ahead technology-wise than the rest of the, you know, industries. And probably, oh, yeah. this is probably a US-centric thing given how much money is getting put into it there. But uh, So much... Yeah. of the funding is from the Department of Defense and it's and of course I think a lot of people sort of abstract that away because you know the money that they're given to do research this research seems like it's so pure and not directed towards anything that can be used potentially to harm people but you don't necessarily know how that's going to pan out in like future decades so that yeah, it's well, tough. on that sort of beautiful, happy note, let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, dip out. Um, thank you so yeah. much for coming on. Yeah, thank do you. Wanna you. Drop, do you want to drop? I don't know. Promo something. Tell them about your Etsy or something. Oh well, my Etsy. I haven't put out anything in a long time, so no. But I mean, I appreciate that though. Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for the chat. I'll see you around. Thank you. Yeah. See ya. <laughs>